Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, uh, which now feels like it was back in the Ice Age. Yeah, I think I was a woolly mammoth when we began, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) This week we're discussing 1917, directed by Sam Mendes. Constructed as a single-take film, it follows two World War I soldiers on a harrowing uh, mission across enemy lines to deliver a message that will prevent carnage. Um, As well as popular success, it was a hit with critics. Uh, Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian noted this phantasmagoric First World War nightmare from the British director is ambitious and unshakable storytelling. Others were equally breathless. I think it's interesting that this critical success was matched at the box office as well. Um, I think $368 million was taken uh, by 1917. Um, And it's also had a slew of critical awards as well. It won seven of the nine BAFTAs that it was up for. Um, And I think it's interesting that the BAFTAs that it won were largely in technical categories. And I think we all have to agree that the thing that sticks in your mind from this film is the amazing cinematography. Um, In particular, Mendes worked quite closely with Roger Deakin, very famous uh, kind of Oscar-winning cinematographer. And this is a film that is incredibly kind of visually lush. Um, And also a film that's technically pretty astounding in that it was filmed almost entirely as a single shot, as a single take. You know, you really feel you're following one arc of the story and the camera follows the actors throughout all of the sort of twists and turns of the plot. So it's a really kind of immersive piece of filmmaking in a way. Tom, I think you also mentioned a very interesting perspective on the, on the look of the film, which is that it, it reminded you of paintings from the period. I really feel they did their homework. I mean, it, it, for those who know the paintings of artists like Paul Nash or William Orpen, a lot of the great landscapes that were painted during the First World War have literally here been brought to life. Like it's meticulously reconstructed. Some of the some of the kind of blasted earth and some of the weird, almost like lunar landscapes that you got in the First World War um, have here been really kind of brilliantly kind of reproduced, but with this very high-tech kind of sheen to them. Yeah, so what struck me being less au fait with, with the landscape portraiture of the period was indeed how much it was like a video game. Uh, I don't play video games at all, but um, the effect of this single shot impression, I don't think it really was done in a single shot, but, but the look of it really made you feel like you might have a sort of one of those headpieces on uh, a virtual reality headpiece that you're kind of making your way through and you're nabbing that enemy, getting that enemy escaping from that attack. So it was a strange mix of the sort of evocation of the period with a super modern gaming feeling, which I think overlaid the content and the, the topic under, under scrutiny, World War I, in a sort of weird, weird way. It, it was, as you say, a kind of very um, gut-wrenching experience where you felt like you yourself were going over the top. One of the downsides of that, though, if I can sound a slightly critical note, is that it means that the film doesn't really give you any historical context or much politics. It's entirely from the perspective of these two protagonists and this mission that they're on. 
Um, and you never really get any sense of what's happening in the wider war, of really what's happening in 1917. It's a completely sort of first person subjective kind of window onto the war. And there were moments where I was crying out for them to tell me a little bit more about why 1917 and what's at stake at that point. Well, Tom, this is the perfect chance for me then to ask you why 1917? <laughs> what was going on in 1917? If the film sort of allows politics and history to drop out, we need to put them back in. I sort of walked into that trap, I can see. Walked uh, into one, it. <laughs> one thing that's happening, I suppose, because I think the film is set in April 1917, um, and it's based in part on Mendes' own grandfather. So there is a, there is a sort of historical empirical kind of core to the film. It's based on a sort of family memory. Um, but in April 1917, when the action is set, this is the month when the Americans uh, are going to be brought into the war, sort of belatedly in 1917, but before any of the American troops have arrived. And I think it's putting it in the context of we're now three years into a conflict which has been incredibly brutal, uh, you know, unbelievable casualties, when morale is really absolutely rock bottom. Um, and it's in that spring of 1917 that many of the French armies are about to mutiny. You know, really morale is collapsing under the kind of unbearable demands being placed on troops. So you, you need to get a sense that 1917 is both the time of like maximum exhaustion, but is also a moment actually before the Americans come when it looks like it's the Axis powers that are going to win the war. Um, sorry, or the central powers, I should say. As in the um, baddies. Oh, you know, goodies and baddies, does that really apply with the First yes. World War? I mean, that's, well, that's well, a question that we may need to talk about. Um, but certainly in 1917, especially, you know, the Russian Revolution is also happening in 1917. It looks like the whole Eastern Front is going to collapse. Um, and as a result, you know, if you were a betting man, you would say in 1917 that the Germans and the Austrians are on course to win. And so this really is a moment, even though it's a small episode, it's a moment at which it looks like uh, the Allied powers, you know, France and Britain are in a pretty dire situation. It's interesting that it's this moment before the Americans enter the war, because obviously the, the film did incredibly well um, in the US of a worldwide gross of $368 million. I think it was $159.2 million in the US. So it's interesting wow. that, that even there's a much clearer narrative, perhaps, for World War II for Americans, and yet this film still captured something of the American imagination which sort of leads me to, to again, ask, ask you, Tom, as, as a Europeanist, um, to bring it perhaps back to the, the, the European or the British setting. How, how has the way we've thought about World War I in relation to World War II changed? Well, I think you put, you know, that little moment of uh, disagreement we had there puts its finger on it in terms of, is one of these wars a war of good and evil? And, you know, we're much more used to thinking about the Second World War as a battle between good and evil, whereas the First World War for a long time has always been much more kind of morally ambivalent. And um, if you go back to the 1960s, particularly when a lot of the or 1950s and 1960s, when you get some very interesting movies about the First World War, it's a really quite dark image of the conflict that you get. Um, have you ever seen Stanley Kubrick's uh, Paths of Glory? I haven't, but then I'm, I'm ironically for doing this podcast pretty terrible at, at uh, these sorts of, <laughs> sorts of what? films. <laughs> One point of these discussions, obviously, is just spur to go and revisit exactly. these things. Um, but that's a pretty dark story about a court-martial, and you see a real sense of like the brutal military discipline that's being used and the very difficult decisions of justice that are being taken in order to try and kind of maintain morale. Um, if you think about other classic treatments of the war in the 1960s, in particular, Oh, What a Lovely War, you know, the famous Joan Littlewood piece that was a theatre piece and then became a film, 
it's a kind of black comedy about the First World War. You know, it looks like a grotesque farce. This is a protest against militarism, against jingoism, against imperialism. Um, and it's at this point in the 60s that you get the idea that the whole First World War is lions led by donkeys, uh, to pick up on the famous Alan Clark uh, book title. In other words, that the common British soldier, the Tommy, was sacrificed by completely stupid British generals, um, you know, the donkeys, who were willing to throw away the lives of a brilliant generation of working class men for almost completely pointless military goals. Um, and you can go all the way through to Blackadder and think about the way in which the First World War becomes synonymous with waste, with kind of grotesquely inefficient combat, born at a terrible price that really seems about nothing. You know, so for a long time, it was a very nihilistic kind of vision of the First World War. Um, and the morality of 1914 seemed much, much murkier. So I wonder then what it is about the appeal in these, in these times, really. I mean, you, it, it did seem like that. Does it still seem like that now? Are, are, we, are we drawn to this notion of waste? Is there something sort of confusing about the present moment? I mean, how has World War I changed in the popular imagination after the 1960s, um, and again, in relation to World War II, which kind of remains the gold standard of, as you say, the, the, the clear-cut moral um, war for the, for, for the Allied forces, um, and certainly not, not for the baddie, uh, the baddie <laughs> opponents, the Axis. Um, so I suppose, yeah, I suppose just what, what happened, you know, what happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s to get us to this point now where we have this quite remarkable appetite for the story of World War I, even though it is much less clear what its purpose was. What, what's, hap what's happened more recently? And I suppose we can discuss very contemporary questions of, of nationhood a bit later, but just generally in that sort of post-1960s period, what about the waxing and waning of World War I versus II? One basic observation I'd make is that things seem much more upbeat. Um, you know, if you even this story is really a story about survival. Yes, there's loss, but that we get the reward as an audience of believing that something has been achieved out of this kind of terrible mission. And um, you might think, you know, of a movie like War Horse, another treatment of the First World War recently that has been unbelievably popular. Um, and again, it's a story of salvage. It's a story of how in impossible conditions, you know, basic decencies and small victories are still possible. So in a way, I think it, it matches what's happening on the level of public opinion. It matches bigger trends in scholarship where people are starting to kind of reclaim 1914 as something more than just a grotesque waste or a kind of hideous military exercise. And actually to try and give it back some of the idealism that I think a lot of people who went to war in 1914 genuinely felt. Um, I think a lot of the disenchanted view of the war is a product instead of the failures of peace after 1918 and then into the 20s and 30s and so on, where people feel that this has not been the war to end all wars and this terrible sense of bitterness and disappointment. Whereas actually many of the soldiers who fought in 1914 thought they were fighting for civilization. I mean, they didn't think that this was a pointless conflict. This was a moment where they thought they were fighting for, you know, Christian values of the most sort of noble sense. And I think historians have, you know, through working with community groups, and I think the other thing we need to think about here is local memory, but historians and community groups have tried to bring the voices of the actual soldiers back to life really much more in the past sort of 20, 30 years. And as a result, we see it as being a struggle in which there, at least for our, the Allied side, there were more things at stake. There was a kind of nobility 
um, in the First World War. So how then does that uh, reclaiming and sort of reinstating some meaning into the war through these this micro focus on on individuals and um, what what they went through how does that fit with this best-selling success of books like sleepwalkers by the historian chris clark which which only reinforces the idea that it was a pointless war for britain that britain actually is is just as to blame as shockingly germany i mean the the argument of his of his book is well partly that britain sleepwalks into the war i think or perhaps that europe sleepwalks into it but certainly to relieve some of the blame on germany what was the appeal of of something like sleepwalkers and and the appeal of this new narrative where actually britain is perhaps just as much to blame as germany for world war one I'm not sure Chris Clark would agree with your gloss of what he's saying in, in making sort of Britain as much to blame as Germany. I mean, the person who made that argument historically was Neil Ferguson. You know, if you go back 20 years and you read a book like Pity of War, you see the argument that it's actually the failures of British foreign policy to take Germany seriously um, that leads to this kind of escalation. Um, I suppose what Chris Clark is doing is actually saying that Eastern Europe is much more important than we've ever really given it credit for. Um, and this goes again to a problem, I suppose, with Mendes's vision of 1917, is that he gives us a lot of the kind of set cliches and characters that we know. You know, it's the Western Front. It's the trenches. It's the symbolism of the poppy. It's the plucky little British Tommy um, and the slightly kind of cold, um, but at least a little bit caring kind of generals. I mean, I do think it's interesting that the presentation of the hierarchy in the movie, the generals, are not just donkeys. You know, they're not just kind of blithering or insensitive uh, figures, but that they do seem more interested in the welfare of the men, um, perhaps maybe in a way that's inaccurate historically. Mm. Um, but I do think that this 1917 shows how in Britain and in America, the First World War is the Western Front and it serves up our classic image and classic representation of the Western Front. Whereas I suppose the benefit of what Chris Clark and other historians are trying to do is to say, you know, what's happening on the Eastern Front is, if anything, just as important, if not more important, and it has a completely different um, iconography, it has a completely different style of fighting. Um, and that we need to be paying as much attention to what's going on in Belgrade and going on in St. Petersburg as we do to what's going on in Berlin, if you really want to understand what's happening in 1914. That narrative might be harder to render into such a, to a film that was so uh, popular. Um, and I think, I think it is that's worth... true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Serb war epic of 1914 <laughs> has not been made, but it should be. Okay, yeah, very obvious point. But I suppose it is just worth saying that th- this this take that Mendes applied to this dreary pre-American year of, of the war, just over the midway point, um, you know, it's it made it one of the top grossing war movies of, of all time. And so I think it's worth thinking about more broadly what the appetite at play here is. And I think obviously there's, there seems to just be a sort of slightly steady thrum of, of desire for great epic war movies and we may touch on the world war ii film dunkirk another one that was a phenomenal um british success but i think just coming from a slightly different part of history of the historical discipline as you tom i there's been another big um centenary really which is around women getting the vote at first in 1918 and i think there's just been a real resurgence of interest in that Edwardian period, that, that's, that sort of period around World War I and just after it, which had such a big impact also on women's lives and on, on, on women getting the vote. And I, I just noticed that there's a, there is a kind of 
interest in the period and in the ways in which World War I isn't just about men going off to battle, but it's also increasingly about the effect on women. And there was the film recently, Testament of Youth, um, uh, based on Vera Britton. And that really brings those two things together, the suffrage movement and the war. So I think there is this, this broader, a broader vein of interest there. Exactly. And I think the home front is being given its due in a lot of these kind of local memory societies as well. From my perspective, uh, growing up, the Second World War was synonymous with kind of war memory. And we were much more used to all the kind of 1960s, 1970s Second World War movies with dastardly baddies. But clearly the recent centenary has had an amazing impact in terms of people researching their grandparents and their great grandparents. And so families up and down the land, including a lot of high streets in Britain, you know, there is a shop in Newcastle, there is a shop in Portsmouth that in association with the British Legion specializes in this kind of, you know, war genealogy or kind of, you know, amateur war history, um, that communities around the country are starting to research much more thoroughly the men from their village and indeed the women they left behind. And so this has become much closer. I think in all kinds of ways, the First World Wars feels now much more intimate. People feel much more emotionally connected to it than they did 20 years ago. And some of that is the nonstop barrage of fictional treatments. You know, another one we should wink to probably is Birdsong. If you think about the success of that Sebastian Falk's novel. Um, but it's also the kind of huge um, public commemorations um, and, you know, and museums doing displays, the Imperial War Museum completely redoing its collections. Think of those amazing poppies and what was it, the blood swept land that was staged in the front of the Tower of London. This sense of a national sacrifice has actually become you know, very powerful to people on a very personal level, on a very kind of familial level. So people's identification with the war has got much more intimate. And mm. the one last example I'd give for that, um, and the movie that really is interesting, is Peter Jackson's uh, new movie about the First World War, They Shall Not Grow Old, where he takes the black and white footage actually from the First World War and then begins to color it. You know, he literally makes it look as close to us, as real to us as some of that Second World War color footage. Um, and so there's something about going back to the war and making it seem proximate, you know, making it seem mm. much closer that is a real trend at the moment. And I think that's partly why audiences who went to the cinema to see 1917 already felt not only that they knew all the visual clues, but that the people they were watching could be their grandparents, just like Mendez. You know, you're meant to identify with these people as you know, examples of your neighbor a hundred years ago or your grandfather a hundred years ago. I think one of the things it did so effectively um, also in terms of perhaps generating a sense of, of memory, nostalgia and, and national feeling to some degree was the, was the depiction of masculinity, which seemed, which basically the whole film, I mean, I don't think there was a single woman in the film. I think it was, There's, was there not, was there I'm, a single I'm, I'm sorry, Zoe, there's one French woman. If you remember, of course there's a there sequence is. where he goes of course to the... There he goes, is. <laughs> he might, we managed to get one European, or at least a second European, and it happens to be a woman as well. And so we get the, the sort of sentimental interlude in the kind of ruins of the That's French right. Town. She's holding a baby. Yeah, so she's there, <laughs> tick, woman. But, but generally, this is, this is a glimpse of an idealized form of, of British masculinity, not just masculinity, which is about taciturnity. These are taciturn men. They are... They are brave, they're courageous, they don't make a fuss, and they do the right thing. They are bound by a kind of by this courageous morality. Um, and I think that <laughs> that was also an interesting move. We are at a time when masculinity, all matters of sexual identity are in flux. 
but on a very literal level, the armed forces are shrinking and shrinking. It's, it's harder and harder to attract um, the traditional types into the armed forces. The ideas of ideal masculinity in our society have shifted. I mean, you only have to watch the likes of normal people, the huge success on the BBC, the adaptation of the Sally Rooney novel, or indeed Love Island or any of these programs to see that idealized masculinity is now much more about revealing your emotional uh, hurt or your emotional damage and admitting to vulnerability. There's very little idealization going on on the, on the big cultural stage now of a kind of war, a, a warlike masculinity, a, a sort of raw physical hero type. And I think that while on the surface, it's quite tricky to find those types now. I mean, take it, take it from me. There, there are a few of those, those uh, heroes around, it seems. We obviously do still have a real hankering to see them in action. They're not brutes. They're tough. They're, gen they're essentially gentlemen. They are, they are fighter. They are warlike gentlemen. And I think that is very well deployed here to shore up a sense of the ultimate British uh, man as well. Um, and so the British values of the stiff upper lip. Exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's the stiff upper lip. It's the, it's, and it's also someone, these physically courageous men who, who can handle absolutely horrendous situations. And that's fascinating for us to see that, I think. And I think it's a sign of how far we've moved away from the emotional regime, if I can use that academic word, of that wartime generation, that figures like Captain Tom now are becoming kind of pop culture sensations because everybody is thrilled by the idea of these male figures who did terribly brave things but never made a fuss about it, just got on with it. You know, they wear their medals, but they're not kind of braying about it. They're not being snowflakes. There is something exotic about a certain wartime masculinity that, you know, that tallies with ideas, traditional ideas about what British national character were, um, that maybe is, you know, reassuring in that way. Um, if I could say a little bit about the, the national character and the national context, um, as uh, a European historian, I did find it problematic that Europe is almost completely absent in this film in 1917. France is literally just the landscape where the battle is happening, you know, the same for Flanders. Um, there is very little um, reflection on the Europeans who might be fighting alongside the British um, or the, indeed the Europeans who are even fighting against them. And maybe that's inevitable when you're doing such a close, you know, almost sort of miniature study of just one little episode in the war. But for me, it's representative of a bigger and unwelcome trend, which is that Europe is kind of dropping out of how we think about the First World War, you know, that we think about it in our silo of national history and national memory. Um, and that's now become increasingly imperial. I should say that the movie does have uh, some um, representations, I think, of Sikh troops at one point. I think there's one Sikh soldier and that created a little bit of a furore when <laughs> Lawrence Fox, the actor, said, that's not realistic. There, this is just sort of diversity casting. But in fact, there, there was all kinds of d diverse soldiers fighting on behalf of the empire. Yeah, as you say. So I think we've accepted it's a global war. And I think we increasingly tell that story. You know, we think about Chinese labor and sort of um, South Asian contribution and so on. And if you go to Imperial War Museum, you can see it absolutely as global war, where British, the British First World War is treated as empire. But the thing that's really disappearing is Europe, you know, both as the place where it happens and also the thing that people think they're fighting the war for. Um, and I know that's not individually Sam Mendes's fault, but I do see it representative of a bigger 
kind of um, blindness, perhaps, to some of the dynamics of the war, like, you know, the fact that overwhelmingly it's fought in France and Belgium um, and that that relationship's not properly interrogated. And the film came out um, in the month preceding, obviously, the 31st of January when we left the EU. Do, do, do you, or when Britain, when Britain left the EU, was there, a, do you think, an obvious invitation to think about Britain specifically in relation to the new going it alone that Brexit suggests we're going to do? How, how did you feel about the vision of Britain in relation to Brexit, Tom, as an avowed Remainer? As an avowed Remainer, I have to say it probably dented my enjoyment of the film, which um, I just, last year, I spent a lot of the year feeling very sensitive about stories of national exceptionalism. You know, any whiff of the idea that Britain is some unique, uh, special kind of nation, I would sort of bulk at a little bit. Um, and in 1917, to be fair, it's not overplayed, but other than there is this complete absence of Europe. Um, and there is a little bit of a kind of heritage brand going on with the movie as well. While I thought the two leads, I mean, George McKay, who is going to be very famous, but at the time of casting, most people didn't know who George McKay was. And he's brilliant as this sort of repressed, taciturn character. It was a shame in a way that Mendes made the generals so many of like Britain's favorite actors of an older generation because it, it completely interrupted the idea that you were watching a little episode of everyday life in the trenches because, oh, look, it's Colin Firth or, oh, look, it's Andrew Scott. Um, these sort of national treasures being deployed uh, in the film, again, gave it a slight coziness somehow. Um, to me, it kind of got in the way of it feeling a kind of much more conventional sort of story about English heroism and England, the little underdog, um, you know, Britain, the little <laughs> underdog, doing what it can against impossible odds. <laughs> Which you don't like. But I have to confess right here that I actually, I'm one of those suckers who likes the little British underdog narrative. I'm quite into the idea of British exceptionalism. So I, I was quite happy, sacrilege for historians watching and going yeah 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 good good plucky britain <laughs> doing its thing both in world wars one and two so i think there there obviously we we have some slight political differences so so i was comfortable with with that and i even though i could see that's exactly what it was doing i think there's just something else to say as we kind of draw to a close is this business of how one connects to world war one versus two and and as you say there's been a lot of local family history about it I connect much more to World War II, and, I, and I'm just like most people probably who, whose grandparents' story is, is much closer in terms of what they did in World War II. No one's really, I don't know if anyone's still alive much from, from World War I. Um, but, 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 but obviously, when you start doing this community history, it's a very English community history. It suggests Englishness. You, you have an English mm. community. You've been here for hundreds of, you, you, you generally, generationally, you are, yes, you belong to the land. For people like me, whose family was completely uprooted from Germany in the, as refugees in the 1930s, uh, World War I is, a, is, even, is just hugely distant. I mean, my, my relatives fought in World War I for Germany, some of them receiving the Iron Cross, they got badly injured. But of course, what then happened in the 1940s, the 1930s and 40s completely wiped out that contribution. So to me, this kind of village, um, personal, localized history that World War I seems to invite feels very alien, whereas my entire family history changed course drastically from World War II. And I think, I think a lot of people in, in the US whose uh, grandparents will have fought in World War II it's more recent. World War II feels, it just does feel to people 
I think of, of more mixed backgrounds, perhaps like it has a more recent uh, resonance. And it still has a political portability um, or it's still like politically useful. You know, here we are in the middle of the Corona virus epidemic. And I can't help but think that Corona is running in parallel with the VE Day celebrations um, mm. and the language of struggle of greatest hour uh, of Captain Tom indeed again. Um, you know, the, the, the blitz spirit that 1940 to 45 is still a kind of bank of images and symbols that, you know, British politics uh, feeds on, completely kind of delights on. Um, whereas 1914, the politics of that is very strange to people. All they feel connected to instead is a sense of sacrifice. All 1914 is, is this terrible story of victimhood and patriotism, um, to which the poppy becomes the ultimate symbol. And I think it's, it's interesting about this sensitivity about the First World War, that we're in an era where wearing a poppy has become, you know, a very performative act. And people not wearing poppies are being trolled and they're being denounced. Like, it's gone from being a choice of whether you remember or not, to being a sign of whether you're, you know, you're a true patriot as to whether you wear your poppy at all times through, through early November. And um, so memory's becoming a kind of, or that connection to 1914 is becoming a kind of, or is becoming a shorthand for Britishness. How do you think that manifests though in the way films are made? If you had to compare Dunkirk and 1917, are they actually that different? Sadly, I think not. Um, and I think that Christopher Nolan, as director of Dunkirk, is famous for having making these dark, cerebral movies. Um, yes, it has some dissonant elements. You know, the way that it's structured temporally is, is quite ingenious. Um, this is a much darker story in some ways than some Second World War narratives. You know, Dunkirk is the, the you know, a very bleak moment for Britain in the war. And yet it still becomes the narrative of against impossible odds, uh, Britain lives to fight another day. Um, and that closing sequence with Tom Hardy landing the plane um, while the music, the score by Hans Zimmer plays a version of Nimrod. I mean, I have to say that's when I really lost patience uh, is that I thought I was mm. watching a sort of slightly dissonant movie about the Second World War. And suddenly the most like uh, English piece of music known, Elgar's Nimrod, Elgar's El um, Enigma Variations suddenly becomes manifest in the score. I felt, you know, at the end, it retreats back to, again, a story of British exceptionalism. We get, you know, bits of the Churchill speech being spoken by... Uh, being oh, spoken I love by the Churchill speech. <laughs> yeah, at which point I was throwing up into my popcorn. You were probably beaming. <laughs> I was, I was but... <laughs> rejoicing. I was eating some more popcorn in rapture. So I feel even very artistically minded film directors who want to try and do a more critical take on the war still end up falling back on a kind of language of national exceptionalism and you know that was unfortunately heightened by the context in which it was screened when you know against the backdrop of brexit and the referendum these questions have become really sensitive i mean as ever historians are out of step with with popular opinion I, although in this case i was more in step with popular opinion but i saw the film 1917 with the with another historian friend who was appalled by it for just for basically the reasons you've set out tom and i found myself guiltily enjoying it for those very same reasons um, drawing, drawing to a, a close then, why the hype, Tom? I think it partly, as I said at the outset, it's virtuoso filmmaking. You know, it's real kind of bravura filmmaking. Um, technically, it's brilliant. Um, in just in terms of a technical achievement, it makes you think of something like um, Russian Ark in this 
brilliant movie by Sukharov 20 years ago, where you do in a single tracking shot, you know, you tell the whole of Russian history going through the Winter Palace. It had a similar sense of, wow, how can they do that? Um, and I think in terms of why it resonated culturally, as I say, I think it tapped into um, a bank of very powerful images, images that we've partly seen through art created during the war and afterwards, through subsequent um, movies that have dealt with this, through subsequent adaptations of the Western Front that have made us constantly see, think about the trenches and those sorts of experiences. And because it told that story again of heroism and sacrifice, which is what the First World War has been repackaged as, there's something kind of quasi-sacred about that sacrifice. And for me, one of the most moments in the film is that sequence where all the men are lying around in the field in preparation for battle and we get that sort of English hymn or kind of English folk song being sung um, that there's this there's as I say a kind of quasi-religious sense of communion between these soldiers in a very green field uh, before they go off into battle that spoke to a you know a real longing for a kind of English manly character. So Zoe for you why the hype? Well, for me, it was just the simplicity of the of the message and the plot in conjunction with very high stakes. So I think there's something irresistible about an incredibly simple setup and life and death stakes for everyone. And then behind that, even bigger stakes, the national outcome in a world war. Then I think the idea that I think the fact that it looked like a video game made it addictive, almost like eating candy. You want to just keep gobbling down more of it. You couldn't take your eyes away. And I think the simplicity really was a balm, really, in what feels like extremely politically confusing times, or at least politically confusing in those halcyon days before the coronavirus. Anyway, that's all we have time for this week. Join us next time for a discussion about Unorthodox, the Netflix series based on Deborah Feldman's memoir.